Well, if Lent is the setting aside of things, if that's kind of core to what we're thinking about when we do Lent, then this passage from Paul tonight, which by the way, we're going to kind of linger on this passage from Paul tonight. So uh, those of you who are here regularly know that I usually try to pull all the passages together and some sort of synthesis, but tonight we're gonna linger on uh, this passage from Philippians if you wanna open your uh, liturgy to there. So this passage from Paul then takes us just right to the peak of Lent. For Lent, what we're really doing in Lent is not giving up sugar or giving up wheat or you know, giving up Facebook or something as, as wonderful as those things might be. Uh, that's not what we're doing. Those are a means to an end. The end is to take our souls on a journey, a pilgrimage, an exploration of our inward condition. We're kind of going on a sojourn every Lent with Jesus, where through our examinations, we discover the kinds of things that shape our identities, the kind of things that give us security, and in the words of Paul tonight, the things in our life that might be needed to be counted as loss, or helping us think about what things should be thought of as of former value, because now we have something else, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so Lent then reveals the places where we need, in Paul's words, to press on, to press on in knowing Christ, to having an identity in him, or as the gospel reading put it, that we could breathe on and ask the Spirit to breathe on the merry parts of us, where you know her as a model of discipleship and devotion, and to undo the Judas parts of us uh, where our insides are broken regarding actually following Jesus and understanding his agenda. So then the last thing I wanna say about Lent, and I think I've said this every week because it is so important, that we do Lent and we do our formation into Christ's likeness, we do our discipleship to Jesus always in the context of God's steadfast love. And Beth reminded us tonight about that at confession, that we are always doing this through the gracious indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All right, so now with that, a little warning, sort of a don't try this at home warning. <laughs> so you're gonna have to think with me a bit tonight. Um, I'm gonna ask you to do a little bit of work and to help you because I think this is so important for each of us personally, um, for those of us who gather here on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, uh, for the whole church in Orange County and for the church in the world, I think this is really important stuff and worth, and worth us thinking about a bit tonight. Paul says that he wants to know Christ. And what I want you to think about with me tonight is what sort of thing is Paul talking about when he talks about knowledge? What does it mean to know? Is it even possible to know anything today? And what's the difference between knowing and religious beliefs? Like in a few minutes, we're gonna say the Apostles' Creed, and we're gonna say this is what we believe. Well, when we do that, are we saying knowledge? In the same way that this is a blue sport coat? Knowledge? No one would question that unless you're colorblind maybe, right? But no one questioned that. We would say that that's in the realm of knowledge. 
And if I knew anything about fabric, I could tell you what the fabric was. And we would say that's in the realm of knowledge, right? Like we can discern between silk and wool or blends or cottons. And we would think that that's in the realm of knowledge. But when we're talking about religious stuff, is there such thing of knowledge or are we really just talking about beliefs? So this is what I wanna help you unpack tonight because it is in my humble view so important. So here's what we need, just a little bit of kind of philosophy here for a minute. We have to first establish what do we mean when we're talking about reality? Is there something real out there that's not like a concept of our mind? Is there anything that's actually real? And reality is simply what exists. Reality is what you have to deal with. And mistakes or false thinking about reality lead to brutal encounters with it. Like, I think I have enough gas in my tank to get there. And this is an employment interview, and it's really important. And I can't be late. I don't want to stop for gas. I think I have enough gas to get there. That's what you sincerely believe. But our beliefs often run into brutal reality checks. Because there is a way that things are. Reality is simply what you have to deal with, whether you like it or not. So if I were going up to the altar, oh, darn it. I have to deal with it. It's there. This step does not care what I think about it. It doesn't care what I think about stepness. Like, what's the stepness in step? It doesn't care what I think it's covered with. It's just there, and I have to deal with it. That's reality. Reality is just simply that which actually exists. So when Paul's talking about knowing Christ, is he talking about doctrine? Is he talking about theological abstractions? Is he wondering about a myth that has some ethical value to it? Or does he suppose there's something real, that he's actually talking about reality. All right, so the second thing, let's talk a bit about beliefs. What are beliefs? Well, beliefs are simply what we think about reality. And of course, our beliefs may or may not correspond with reality. You can think you have enough gas in your gas tank when in fact you don't. So it's possible, right, to be wrong in your beliefs. In fact, we're wrong about what we believe all the time. There's probably a day that goes by that we're not, not wrong about something that we believe to be true. I mean, this is constant if you stop and think about it for a minute. So our beliefs about reality can be true or false. And this is what's core. Reality cannot be altered by our thinking about it. Like what we think about reality doesn't matter. This is what, for instance, C.S. Lewis, Lewis was getting at in his famous quote, you know, that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Now, that's kind of old-fashioned language today, but that's what Lewis was meaning to say. What you think of Jesus does not construct who he is. Are you feeling me here? Whether you think he's a liar or a lunatic or Lord or whatever you might think of him, that doesn't alter who he actually is. What we have to do is come to grips with who he actually is. Because, again, this is so important, belief cannot govern your life. The only thing that can govern your life is knowledge. Knowledge is always the foundation for action. 
so that even the faith of the Bible stories grew from knowledge. So for instance, you know, Genesis 12, we read that passage where Abraham, not knowing where he was going, are you feeling me here? Not knowing where he was going, left. But why? On the basis of the knowledge of God's personal, consistent, constant care of him. It's because he knew his God and was actually in conversational relationship with him. So on the basis of knowledge, he had faith. Are are you catching this? This is really important. Steps of faith, true beliefs, these all grow out of the context of what we think of as knowledge. But today, all around us, and, and this is what I do in my academic work as professor of evangelism, all around us, society's pressures are to get us to treat religious beliefs as something other than, or in fact, less than knowledge. So you can believe whatever you want, just don't call it knowledge. So religious beliefs, our society are are marginalizing any kind of, sorry, religious knowledge to the realm of mere beliefs. And so when people say things like all religions are equal, what they really mean is, listen to this, all religions are false and their doctrines unknowable. That's what's really underneath the whole notion of all religions are equal. It's kind of, it doesn't matter. They're all unknowable, so why bother with it? So religion then, in the popular mind, like in bars and college campuses and clubs, is not a subject of knowledge. At best today, religion is something like sincere opinion or strong feelings or professions or devotions or commitments. Or again, maybe these biblical stories are sort of like myths who have sort of an ethical value or they're a tradition. So then what really goes on in the popular mind today then is that belief becomes something like a heroic act in defiance of reality. Are you catching this? There is no God, but we are so persistent, so heroic in our beliefs that we're defying reality. Not like wicked defying gravity, defying reality. This huge, you know, you know, big, you know, Hercules kind of faith. We actually work up so much faith that we like create a reality that's not really there. That's what goes on so much today in the popular mind. And that if we do this, if there is a God, we just might get his favor. So like, you know, people have like conditional beliefs, like, well, just in case. And there are a lot of people who grow up, who grew up in churches. I'm not picking on any church in particular, but just like people who maybe grew up Catholic or especially people who grew up in sort of ethnic religious families. So again, you know, think of like an Irish Catholic family in New York. And again, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just trying to give you an example you know, a Mennonite family in Pennsylvania. They, they grow up with these sorts of beliefs, but they're just really conditional. Like, I kind of hang on to it in case there is a God, but I'm not really feeling it. Well, then the way this conversation goes in our society, and this is why I think this is so important, Christians have often then responded with harsh dogmatism and intolerance and even persecution, you say, well, we're not persecuting anybody. You know, that's Islam. Those, that's Arabs today. That's that Sunni Shia stuff. We don't do that. 
Well, we have, and we still do it in spots. Because whenever somebody says to themselves, I'll do whatever it takes to win this, the whatever it takes always leads to persecution. I will literally do whatever it takes to win. But just, I want you to just, again, I told you I was going to make you think. What do you think about this tonight? Can the answer to intolerance possibly be the giving up of knowledge? Is that the answer? I'm telling you, that's the popular answer. Let's just have all the religions stop claiming to have knowledge. And that way we can just all sort of tolerate each other. Is that the answer, really? Like, right now, that's the basic human suggestion. Let's just say there is no such thing. Well, then what do we make of Paul? I want to know Christ. Not have beliefs about him. Not to have an appropriate Christology. That's a fancy word from systematic theology about what to believe about Jesus. No, Paul wants to know Christ. So I want to suggest there is a way of actually getting to knowledge that's filled with love and peace and tolerance. And, but, to do, but to get there, I've got to tell you about knowledge. So here's what knowledge is. Knowledge is true beliefs about reality. So I believe there's a step there. I'm right. So I'm true. I'm not false. If I believe there is no step there, but there actually is, that's false. It's not knowledge. So the way we deal well with reality is, if you think about it, that's the kind of thing we expect and require of surgeons and leaders, right? Like, would you go to a brain surgeon who said, hey, I got lucky last week and fixed one? Right? No, we require of anybody in authority knowledge. We want to expect our political leaders, our educational leaders, our business leaders, certainly surgeons, we expect of them knowledge. I mean, I have witnessed this happen in my own family. When this amazing surgeon walks into the room at USC, who's been for years the head of research at the American Cancer Society, humble, gentle, kind, freaking brilliant, just as smart as you can get on any of these topics. And I see what it does to Debbie. Because we require of people who we're gonna trust that they have knowledge. And so when Jesus said these things about himself and acted the way he acted and said that this was all in concert with the Father, is that in the realm of knowledge or do we have to, re- or do we have to sort of marginalize it in our culture today to just religious faith? It's knowledge that gives people authority. So concerning Jesus, when we're talking about knowing Jesus, as Paul is tonight, what we're talking about is a richly interactive journey of coming to know a person. The knowledge that's in view here is the kind of thing that facilitates friendships. So while it's, it's personal and richly interactive, I don't mean to say by that that it's private, I, just, I mean to say it's relational, it's personal, so that when Jesus was on the streets teaching, here's what people said. We have never heard anyone teach with such authority. And I remember 15, 16 months ago when that surgeon said, oh, we, we can fix that, we got it. I mean, that was unheard of. No, but nobody was telling us we got it. 
But when that surgeon, with his imagination of how this could be done, and he had already rounded up a couple of his peers and figured out how the three of them could do this surgery and, and you know, fix this condition, it was, you know, that kind of thing. We've never heard anybody speak with such authority because no one had his knowledge. And that's what people experienced from Jesus. Are you catching this? Not just this is pretty, not just that he's poetic, not just that he supposedly had an interesting birth, but he was saying things that made people think this, this is like a category of stuff that's unheard of. No rabbi talks with this kind of authority. You know, nobody, no mom and dad, nobody in our culture speaks with this kind of authority, has this kind of knowledge. Or you remember Paul is often talked about in his letters as being kind of weighty, right? Even Peter sometimes couldn't get Paul because Paul was saying these things that were sort of deep and true. All right, so Paul says, I want to know Christ. And what I want to do tonight is to commend Christ to you as a knowable person. Again, not private. I'm not talking about a privatized religion. I'm talking about a relational thing where he as a person is knowable and that he can become to us, as he was to Paul, the highest priority of our life. And Paul, of course, didn't invent that. Paul got that idea from Jesus who said, seek first the kingdom of God. Paul didn't make that up. Paul's trying to follow Jesus and saying, I'm making him the highest person and part of my life. And so if you're, now to just stop with what we talked about with um, beliefs and reality and truth or knowledge, if you were to ask the scriptures what is real, they would answer back to us God and his kingdom. And they would say that this is the only thing you can count on. If reality is what you have to deal with, or if reality is what you can count on to get to a different place, then what the scriptures tell us is the only thing that can be actually counted on in this life is God and his kingdom. And that's why the scriptures invite us to align our lives with that as the one thing that all of us have to come to terms with. And the simple view of the New Testament is the way that we come to terms with this reality is by trusting, by placing our confidence in and following Jesus making him the master of our life, becoming his student in kingdom living. Now, this is crucial. It doesn't matter whether you're in school or retired or taking what they're given because you're working for a living. You know Christ in your actual life. The only place you're gonna know Christ is in your world now as you live interactively with him within your life as you presently experience it. I don't know what your rhythms are. But whatever your rhythms are, it's in that rhythm that we actually come to know Christ. We do it by taking his life into our life, walking with him, in a sense, betting our life on him. Now, this matters. We are talking tonight literally about kind of ultimate things. This is first order stuff. This matters. And it matters in the sense that we read in the gospel that we all have these sort of fissures in ourselves, you know, little Judas, little Mary. It matters in that regard. But it matters in the real world 
What has happened in the last decade or so in the genocides in Rwanda and Sudan and Bosnia? What happened in the theater in Denver or in the classroom in Connecticut or the brutal gang rape of that tourist in India this morning? These things are not accidents. They're not flukes. They're not some strange thing. They're the natural outcome of the human heart. They don't arise from nothing. So when we say things like, man, I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, reading the news is just getting just more and more discouraging. I don't know why I do it. I, I, almost every other day, I think I'm done. I just, but then this is part of my job and I have to stay connected to the news and the world, so I hang in there. But it is depressing. And there's something in all of us that says, you know, can't we just give peace a chance? Well, to do so, we have to change the human heart. You have to become the kind of person for whom rape is not an option. It would never cross your mind. Now, to serve that lady, yeah, because I'm an ambassador of God in his kingdom. And what that means is I'm doing what God's doing. And what God's doing is loving and serving people and helping them to come to know him and to take their life in his and to find their life in the kingdom of God. But if somebody's having to gruntingly not rape because the true condition of their heart is they're the kind of person who would, we're not getting anywhere. Peace will never have a chance. What has to happen is we have to become the kinds of people who are ruled by the love of God and living a life that is founded on the knowledge of God. And I, I know here we are, just this little group of people sitting in this little indescript church and some, no, I mean, if you did a Google Earth thing, we're just in the middle of nowhere here and West Coast of Mesa, but I'm telling you, this is important stuff. This is absolutely first order stuff. And it's why it's important that, that we exist as Holy Trinity. It's why it's important that I'm planting other churches like this. It's why it's important that all the gospel churches around us, what they're doing is important. Our values, quiet, intelligent, beauty, our liturgy, the quiet vibe we try to um, create here week in and week out. We don't do that to be hip. We do it in service to this. Actually, if you wanted to know me, what I really am is a frustrated evangelist. My, well, my life would have been perfect if I could have been the next Billy Graham. Perfect. In fact, when I was 19, I would have settled for being the next Greg Laurie. That's absolutely, I, I just would have settled for that. Because this is actually important stuff. The pain and heartache of human life doesn't emerge from nowhere. It emerges from a brokenness that's a willfulness to not deal with the reality of God and his kingdom. And now increasingly the world's taking away from us even a way to talk about it. And we have to find a way to stay engaged in loving conversation that doesn't break down into kind of all kinds of forms of pers persecution and trying to win this thing through power. I just want to say, as we thinking of turning ourselves from word to table, that as we come to the table each week during Lent, we're reminded that there's a spiritual sustenance for us. 
and for our mixed moral condition. And then as we come to the table each week, we're reminded of reconciliation, that we ourselves are being reconciled to God. And our broken Judas parts are being healed. And we're being forgiven for the things that we do week in and week out. And as we come in this very simple posture that's really kind of a sacrament, meaning God using the material world to convey something of his goodness. As we come to the, you know, up here every week and you, you hold your hands out, think about it. What other time in life do you do this? Where else in your week do you humble yourself to receive something? Not snatching, not earning, not making it happen, but just humbly receive something. And as we do this week in and week out, this gesture of our need to be fed by Christ's life gets used by God. So tonight, come. Come be fed on the ongoing life of Jesus. Come tonight, find the true knowledge that feeds the Mary in us and that's a weed killer for the Judas in us. Come tonight, feed on Christ in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving.